Well, good evening. I'm glad that you're here this morning, or this, this evening, um, not this morning. Um, but if you would, let's go ahead and turn to Psalm 119. We'll be looking at verses 49 through 64, the Zion and Het sections of the psalm. And as you turn there, uh, just to kind of give you um, a little information, tonight what we're going to be seeing is that the, the psalmist, he entreats us to remember the promises of God. And he, he tells us that because for the psalmist, they bring him life, hope, and comfort. But in order to see that, we're going to need God's help. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you might reveal your son to us tonight. Lord, that we might see his glory, that we might seek his face. Lord, send your spirit upon us. Lord, open our eyes and our ears so that we might see Jesus. In his name, amen. Psalm 119, 49 through 64. Remember your word to your servant, which ye have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promises. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth... O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so this section before us tonight, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful section that reminds us of, of both the promises of God and, and the goal of his redemption. And I got to say, uh, after the past two weeks in Memphis, I'm not in your shoes, I'm not you necessarily, but, but I'm tired. And I feel a sense of weariness of this place. And I wonder if you feel that as well. As I was preparing for this passage, I, I couldn't help but think about this famous quote by St. Augustine where he says, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds rest in you. Our passage tonight, the psalmist, just like us, in the midst of competing narratives and discourses of life, through the, the hopeless nature of the world that we live in, could very easily forget it, all that God has done for him. And that's our temptation as well, to forget the things that God has done for us, to forget his promises that he's made to us, his faithfulness. And so the psalmist rightly tells us, remember, take heart in the promises of God and his mercies. And perhaps tonight you feel that sense of restlessness too, that sense of hopelessness. The constant going and trying of the world, the constant grit and grind of life, the constant performance pretending that we all go about doing. And if so, this passage tonight, it, it's important for us. It gives us hope. 
It gives us comfort in the midst of life. And so tonight we're going to see something very simple. We're going to see that God's promises are good because, and because of that, we should take comfort in them. And so we're going to see that with three points. If you're, if you're following along, we're going to see that through remembering the promises of God, responding to the promises of God, and rejoicing the promises of God. So first, remembering God's promises. The psalmist wants us to see, he wants us to dwell on the promises of God. Multiple times throughout this psalm, he says, remember, 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 it's important to him. One of the things that we miss in our English translations is the depth of the words that the psalmist is using here. There not only is eight lines in Psalm 119 for every stanza, there's actually eight words that the psalmist uses for law, eight synonyms. Within the first four verses of our passage, we have three of them. And what's really interesting about those three is they are all about God's actions. Verse 49, 50 and 52, they use the words word, promise, rules, but they're all about the actions of God. It's the word of God that gives the psalmist hope. It's God's promise that gives him life. It's his rules or his rulings, his justice that he takes comfort in. In the midst of a world that feels helpless, in the midst of the wicked and the persecution that comes with that, or even the daily dying of self, the psalmist takes comfort in the fact that God has acted on his behalf, that his promises are true. And what are those promises? What is this word or action that God has done on our behalf? What has he done? What brings the psalmist comfort and hope? Well, certainly the, the original audience, they may, have, they may have been thinking about Abraham, Father Abraham, and the covenant that God made with Abraham. Perhaps they would have thought about Moses, the covenant that, that God makes with Moses and the people of Israel. Maybe they would have thought about the prophets and the, the promises of a new covenant that's coming. They might have thought about God's actions and redemption for the people of Israel, bringing them out of slavery and bondage in, in Egypt, or perhaps his, his goodness and his provision and mercy to them in the wilderness, perhaps even delivering them to the promised land. But all of these things, they, they really have one thing that we could, we could summarize them as, God's intent, and all of these promises could be summarized with this phrase, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's what theologians call the, the Emmanuel principle, that all of God's promises, all of his actions are going about bringing this thing forth, that he is going to be your God, and you will be his people. All of his actions are meant for that. God is longing to dwell, to live, to delight with his people, and he promises that his people will do the same with him, that he'll comfort and quiet them with his love. God has promises for his people for that, that they will rejoice in him, that he's going to end death and sin, that, that he is going to be reunited with his people. All of history is going towards that end. How do we know this to be true? Because God's word tells us, if you were, if you were to open up to Matthew 1, this is what you would find describing Jesus. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, for God is with us. Jesus, Emmanuel himself, came and dwelt with his people. He brought about the reality of these promises. 
by conquering sin and death, by dying on the cross for, our, for us sinners. Jesus conquers the forces that separate us from him. Jesus delights in you. He's promised himself to you. He's died for his bride. He's given all for his bride. The psalmist is telling you, in the midst of the hopeless nature of the world, what is your hope? What is your comfort? It's that God's promises are bringing about this reality. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Don't forget these promises. But if we're honest, I think we would, we would probably all admit that we constantly find ourselves running to other things to give us hope and comfort, running to other things to give us life. We continue to doubt God, and we, we continue to doubt his promises even. Are they sure? Are they real? Are they going to happen? And so we'd run to other things. For example, um, a little bit of a confession here, but one of my favorite musicians is Taylor Swift. And you could argue that uh, Taylor maybe is one of the greatest musicians of the past uh, 20 years. This fact alone, since 2020, when the pandemic hit, she has written and produced over 40 songs. Many of them have been massive hits. A few years ago, there was a documentary on Netflix about Taylor, and it was a fascinating documentary. As she, as she reflected on her career, she described how in the early years of her career, the only thing that she wanted was to be good. She just wanted people to like her. She wanted to be the good girl. But then she started to discuss how when success didn't come, suddenly everything changed for her. That she had a drive, a desire deep down where everything was intent upon winning the awards, upon becoming the greatest musician that there was. And she finally wins the awards and she gets the success. And after finally winning the awards and achieving the success, this is what she says. After all the work to get there, Oh God, what now? Once on the mountaintop, what now? Shouldn't I have someone to call? Shouldn't I have someone to be with? She had traded out relationships for success. And if you know anything about Taylor Swift, the past number of years have all been concentrated on her constant turnover of boyfriend after boyfriend after boyfriend, trying, searching, longing to finally have that hole filled in her life, that relational hole. But it's easy to look at someone whose whole life has basically been displayed online and, and point at their idols and the ways that they've failed, but I can't help but think that we do the same thing. That we constantly, over and over, we forget God's promises to us. We pursue success or how good we might look in front of other people. We long to be liked by other people. And I got to say that it's hard not to even just stand up here and think that, that my hope and my joy and my comfort is going to be whether I do good tonight or I do bad. My hope and my comfort is so easily put in the things that I do. We're longing for something else. We constantly turn our gaze from one thing after another after another, longing for comfort, longing for hope. And the psalmist is telling us, don't forget the promises of God. Don't forget the mercy and the grace and the promises that come with them. He has made actions on your behalf. He is working. But secondly, not only does the psalmist tell us not to forget the promises of God, he tells us to remember those promises. He also tells us to respond to God's promises. He tells us to respond to the salvific actions that God has done towards us. And so how do we do that with hope? 
as you reflect on your own sin, perhaps you, like me, perhaps you're driven to one of two different options. You either are driven to despair over all the ways that you keep failing. Could God possibly have grace on me? Are these promises for me such a failure as me? Or possibly, you, instead of despair, you go towards legalism. I've got to get it together. I've got to do it right if God's ever going to look at me. Look at what the psalmist hopes in. Look at what he pleads for. In verse 56, the psalmist says, I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. He's giving us a clue, a hint, if you will. He's telling us what to do with these promises of God. In the, in the literal Hebrew, it says, I beg for your face with all my heart. He's begging for the face of God. When confronted with your own sin, when confronted with the hopeless nature of this world, with its wickedness, its despair, you beg for the face of God. Is that all that you want is his gaze? Is that the only thing that can bring you comfort in life? It's the gaze of God upon you. The psalmist tells us, don't just remember, but pursue the face of God. It's not only important for a believer to start there, but it's where we live. We live longing and looking to have the face of God upon us. But it's humbling, isn't it? Compared with the the massive glory of God, it's humbling to be in his presence. To have everything that we've done stretched out in front of us. How could he possibly take us? Well, psalmist tells us. Look down, he says, he's pleading, he's clinging to one thing, to God's grace. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. It's as if the psalmist is praying, Lord, I'm seeking you with every fiber of my being. I'm not worthy to be here. I have no right to be here. Lord, please be gracious to me. Lord, please give me your face. Lord, please turn your eye to me. The psalmist is desperate to get the gaze of God. And again, all too often, I think we look elsewhere. Instead of for the favor of God, we look elsewhere And perhaps you're wondering tonight, how do I respond to these promises? God tells you, come. Come all who are weary and heavy laden, come. Come, plead to have have the face of God upon you by his grace. Come plead with his grace. Plead on his grace. Come. But the response to the promise, it doesn't just stop at seeking the face of God. It's seeking his graciousness. It It actually continues on as well. It continues on towards turning towards his ways. The psalmist doesn't just seek God's face and his grace and then continue on with the ways that he was doing. No, he couldn't possibly do that. Seeking God's face implies that you're seeking his ways. You're turning towards his commands. God's words, his promises, his justice on your behalf, they bring about a change in us. They cause us to do the things that God loves and longs to do. Love does that. It bends us, it molds us, it changes us, it molds us into the thing that we love. And the law for the psalmist, it becomes a delight, not because keeping it draws the eye of God. No, no, it's when he knows that he has the eye of God, when he has his face, that he says, 
I love to keep your commandments. I love walking in your ways. It's no longer a burden. It's now his delight. He's molded and he's shaped by the love of God. God's promises and actions on our behalf, they, they can't help but cause in us a deep desire both to appeal to the grace for his, to the grace of God for his grace and to walk in his ways. Love changes us. It molds us. This past week, me and, me and James went shopping. We just had to run to the store. James is my, my three-year-old. And yeah, honestly, I mean, maybe this is a confession as well. This is the first time I've just taken James somewhere by myself that's like public in a store. So I'm sorry to my family for not uh, doing that more. But it was an experience, let me tell you. A three-year-old in Walgreens is always an experience. And as we were walking, I noticed that um, James didn't stand to the side of me. He, he stood right behind me, and he walked everywhere that I walked. And I would, I would stop, and I would look at the shelves, and I would crouch down, and I, I would look over to see where he was, and lo and behold, he's crouching right next to me, looking at the shelves. No idea what he's looking at. He's just imitating somebody. Love molds us. It changes us. Just as a child longs to imitate their parents, so we should long to do the things that our God loves. So it's worth asking. If love molds and shapes you, what's shaping you right now? What are the things in your life that that are shaping you and that are molding you because you love them? What are they? Is it the pursuit of success? Is it relationships? Is it the approval of others? What are the things that you're running to or that are shaping you now in your life? For the psalmist, it's the gaze of God that's shaping him. He's, he is humiliated in front of the, the gaze of God and it's upon his grace that he is pleading. That's what's shaping him. But even if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't really desire God's ways. I don't really desire his commandments. I don't really desire to do any of these things. What am I supposed to do? It says, Sean says, every single communion week, don't sit idly. Pursue the face of God. Plead his grace upon his promises. But lastly, it's not just the, the remembering and the Um, responding to God's promises, the psalmist also tells us of the reward of God's promises. Not only do we need to remember and respond, we need to rejoice in the rewards that come with it. These promises, they offer us one thing, one thing only that can finally bring rest to the restless souls that we have. The psalmist reorients his whole life around the reality of God's actions and around his promises. How does he do that? Look in verse 57. He tells us, The Lord is my portion. Such a short verse that I almost glossed over it when I was reading and I was preparing. The Lord is my portion, my share, my possession, my reward. The Lord is mine is what the psalmist is crying out. And isn't this the goal of of life that the psalmist is telling us? The goal of, of your redemption, the goal of your salvation is so that you can say too that the Lord is yours. You're his. That's what the Apostle Paul gets at when he says to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Why is, it, why is it gain? Because you actually get 
faith is made sight, you get to see him. And everything is taken away, but his gaze is there. New City Catechism the, is the catechism that many of our children have done throughout the past couple years. And question one gets at this in a very simple way. It says, what is my only hope in life and death that I am not my own, but belong to God? The psalmist knows this. This is his motivation, his comfort, his hope in life is that he belongs to God. That's his hope. That's his comfort. That's his life. And this is important to see in the midst of life, through the struggles and disappointments, the heartaches, the restlessness, the hope, the comfort for the believer is this. It's the promise that God promises himself to you. God's pledged himself to you. That you, you've been bought. You've been freed. You've been brought into the family of God. You've been adopted. He is your inheritance. He is your share. Jesus has given himself away for his bride. He's, he's sacrificed all for her. You were the pearl of great price from which he went and sold all that he had in order to get you. You belong to him. The greatest reward that you receive among all the blessings of heaven is that you get God. He's your inheritance. He's your reward. He is yours. This is what he has promised to bring about for his people. And the psalmist, he can't help but declare, even, even amidst the persecution of the wicked, even as the wicked ensnare him, even in the hopeless world that we live in, that he has a sure and steady hope. A sure and steady hope of this inheritance, that God is his, that he's tied to him so intimately that as Jesus says, no one can snatch you from his hand. You belong to him. He belongs to you. So intimately is that relationship. The greatest good for mankind is to find our rest in him, for it's there that we find the only hope in life and death. It's only there that we find comfort for our souls and life everlasting. And so where do you go in the midst of hopeless situations? When you're looking for comfort, where do you go? Because quite frankly, and maybe this is just growing up, but the past couple of years are hard, aren't they? Through the pandemic, or maybe loved ones getting diagnosed, or suffering, or death, the past couple of years are hard. That's not even to mention the the turmoil that we maybe feel in our country or even in our city, I mean, my goodness, just the last week by itself was so difficult. Where do you go when it's hopeless? This isn't even counting the, the constant day-in, day-out grind of life, the feelings of inadequacy or loneliness or f- of failing. We constantly face things that are hopeless. We constantly live in a, a challenging and difficult world. Where do we go with these? The psalmist is telling us, go to God's promises. Go to, go to the things that God has actually done for you. Those are the things of hope and comfort on your behalf. His steadfast love, his faithfulness, it fills the whole earth. One last promise. In Revelation 21, verse 3, we, we read this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. 
And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus, Emmanuel, comforts his people. He wipes away their tears. He promises that he's making all things new, that all sad things will come untrue. And it's in that reality that man's greatest good is finally realized, found face to face with the Lamb of God, the Savior of the church, we find rest for our souls. Take comfort. Have hope for Jesus, the resurrection and the life is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we long to find comfort and hope in you. We're amidst all of the changing things of our world, the, the chances that we run into. Lord, we long to find hope and comfort in you throughout the distractions of this life. Lord, let it be so. Let, let our eyes fall upon your face. Lord, move us towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.